Jesus said, For it is if a man going on a journey summoned his slaves and entrusted his property to them, to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, and then he left them and went away. The one who received the five talents went off at once and traded with them and made five more talents. In the same way, the one who'd received two talents made two more talents. But the one who'd received the one talent went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. Then the one who'd received the five talents came forward, bringing five more talents, saying, Master, you handed over to me five talents. See, I've made five more talents. The master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You've been trustworthy with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. In the same way, the one who'd received the two talents came forward and said, See, master, you gave me two talents. I made two more talents. The master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You've been trustworthy with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. To the one who'd received the one talent, he came forward and said, Master, I knew that you were a harsh man, that you reap where you did not sow, that you gather where you did not scatter seed, so I was afraid. And I hid your talent in the ground here. Have what is yours. The master said to him, You knew, did you, that I reap where I did not sow, that I gather where I did not scatter. You ought to then have taken what I gave to you and invested it with the banker so that I could have what was mine with interest. So he said, take what was this man's and give it to the slave who had ten talents. For all those who have will be given more so that they will live in an abundance. And those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. As for this wicked and lazy slave, throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The Gospel of the Lord. Last week, I talked about how in the parable about the ten bridesmaids who get locked out of the wedding banquet, how it's okay and even faithful to see the bouncer at the door in that story, the one who keeps the bridesmaids out of the wedding banquet, as someone other than Jesus. And that's a new, different, surprising take on a familiar teaching for some people. This morning, then, is kind of a variation on a theme in that today's parable may not be what we're used to seeing on its surface either. So bear with me. First of all, smarter people than me point out that this is not what they call a kingdom parable, which just means it's one of those stories or parables that Jesus tells that does not begin with the phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like da 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 And that's good news because this is one of those stories or parables from Jesus that ends with the outer darkness and the weeping and gnashing of teeth. So just like it didn't fit or 
feel right last week that Jesus would be the one behind that door keeping others out of God's wedding feast. It never feels quite right either to see the God we know in Jesus as the one who throws people into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. So this may invite us to wonder, contrary to the expectations and familiar teachings and assumptions of many people, maybe contrary to the way we are used to understanding this story, this makes us or invites us to wonder if the slaveholding master in today's parable has to be a stand-in for the God we know in Jesus or not. And we're left to wonder then, if Jesus' parable isn't painting a picture of God's kingdom, then he must be painting a picture about something else, like, perhaps, the world as he understood it to be, and the world as it was for those who were listening to him tell this parable. And by extension, unfortunately then, this might also be about the world we still find ourselves living in. And it means Jesus seems to be railing against the ways of the world as we know it, and about our misuse of reliance on and love for money. See, if the master in today's story isn't meant to be a stand-in for God or Jesus, it means he's just some guy. And he's a mean, selfish, abusive, greedy kind of guy at that. And it changes everything once we're allowed to consider him that way. It means that the slaves who please him aren't necessarily to be commended, as maybe we've been taught they might be questioned instead, maybe even pitied. Yes, they take his money, they make more of it, but it was likely by unfair, unfaithful means. And everyone listening to Jesus back in the day would have known or assumed that. And those first two slaves may have acted out of fear as much as anything else because we all know, as they likely did, what happened to that third slave when he didn't play along or do the master's bidding. See, the truth about society and the culture in which Jesus was living and speaking and preaching and teaching, especially for those faithful Jewish peasants who were hearing him, was that people were not upwardly mobile capitalists, like you and I have been trained to be. Whereas we are inclined to look at those first two slaves who doubled their master's money with admiration and a pat on the back, even, Jesus and his listeners would have looked at them with some suspicion, maybe a little bit of judgment, maybe for defrauding someone or lending money with interest, like some sort of tax collector. And we all know what they thought about tax collectors in Jesus' circles, right? The Old Testament scripture of Jesus' faith, after all, is full of warnings and prohibitions against storing up more than you could use, lending money for interest, and the like. So there would have been questions. Maybe those listening to Jesus would have simply questioned the motivation of any slave who wanted to line the pockets of their enslaver just to make their way into his good pleasure. Because if this isn't a kingdom parable, 
These slaves who enter into the joy of their master weren't entering into the joy of the God we know in Jesus. It might be fair and faithful and a little more interesting to wonder about the fact that they were entering into the joy of someone more like Don Corleone or Tony Soprano or Omar Navarro if you've watched Ozark. The master in Jesus' story might have been seen as a money-grubbing swindler who sends others out into the world to do his dirty work and leaves them behind. This enslaver who reaps where he doesn't sow and who gathers where he doesn't scatter seed, a harsh man. And remember, for their work in the end, these first two slaves were still slaves, after all. Being put in charge of more dealings and more dirty work that would have made their fellow slaves and the average law-abiding Jewish peasant cringe. And all of this means that the poor guy who buried the money, the one who didn't invest wisely what his master had given him, the one who didn't make more of what he'd been entrusted with, the one who didn't do his master's bidding, the one who ends up cast into the outer darkness with all that weeping and gnashing teeth, that poor guy is the hero in Jesus' story. This slave bucks the system, as it were. He's a revolutionary rebel. We can imagine him standing up to the master with some measure of fear and trembling, wondering about what's coming his way and refusing to play the mob boss's game. He buries his money in the ground rather than try to make more of it by cheating others, by charging interest, or by otherwise growing that kind of wealth just for the sake of growing that kind of wealth and adding to his harsh master's capacity to continue enslaving and oppressing his subjects. And then he returns his master's same measly, dusty, dirty, up-from-the-ground-covered talent that he was given, perhaps balanced or spinning on the top of his middle finger, if you know what I mean. So what does this have to do with you and me, with Cross of Grace, with our lives as followers of this Jesus in the world as we know it? If we understand the parable this way, we see Jesus not painting a picture of God's kingdom where dirty deeds done dirt cheap are praised and rewarded in heaven. But we see this parable as an indictment of the way too much of the world was and is for so many. And in that last slave, the one who gets thrown into the outer darkness, Jesus may even be painting a picture of just what's about to happen to him soon enough when he refuses to play the game of the religious and political masters of his day, when he himself gets thrown into the outer darkness that is the cross and his crucifixion. And here, then, is our hope and our invitation. 
We are called, as always, to act like Jesus. When we talk and pray and invite one another to use our money for the good of God's church in the world, for the sake of God's kingdom among us, we are doing nothing more and nothing less than challenging the ways of the world as we know it. We are standing up for generosity in the face of greed. We are choosing to be faithful instead of fearful with the resources and the blessings that God has given to us. Wednesday night, many of us heard from Sharla Yearwood at the first event put together by our newly minted racial justice team. As part of that evening, Charlotte talked about the inescapable normal of whiteness and colonialism in our world. She talked about how those in power generations and generations ago began to set the standard for the way the rest of the world operates still. This is true when it comes to everything from fashion to academia to politics to church even as we understand and experience it today. And it's true also where the economics of capitalism are concerned. A few of us were talking after Charla's presentation about how inescapable the ways of capitalism are in our lives and in our work in the world, especially in this country. How in order to succeed by the world's standards, we have to abide by the rules and we have to follow the ways and we have to live up to the expectations of the capitalist culture in which we live. That's impossible to deny. And I'm such a product of it, I'm not even sure it's always bad. And I can see that it's so deep and so wide and so woven into the fabric of our lives and our culture and our economy that it is inescapable even if we wanted to be freed from it. except for here, except for in our life together as Christians in the church and in this place, as believers, as followers of the way, as disciples of Jesus Christ. And I think that's something like what we learn from the third enslaved person in Jesus' parable today that we don't have to follow all the rules all the time, that we don't have to play the game at every turn, that we can buck the system, refuse to do the master's bidding in the name of grace and mercy and equity, justice, generosity, sacrifice, and love. When we give our money away for the work of God's church in the world, it is countercultural. When we give to others with no strings attached, not expecting a return on our investment or an increase in principle like we'll do with our Thanksgiving meals later today, we rebel against the greed that surrounds us. When we do the math and decide prayerfully to give a significant portion of our income to the work of God in the world through church and charity, through philanthropy and fun even, we bring the kingdom to life just like Jesus did. This is hard work. This is holy work for sure. But it's why faithful stewardship, 
being mindful about our money and using it as a tool for spiritual growth, right? all that is one of the greatest gifts of the church in the world and one of our greatest blessings and challenges as disciples. Our offerings are nothing more and nothing less than a spiritual practice that speaks truth to power if and when we will allow it to be. So I hope we can see and use our money, especially the ways we're called to give it away, as a way of being freed from the master that money and greed want so badly to be in our lives. And I believe that when we give, always only with gratitude for what is already ours, that we will be filled with the joy of a different, better master that we will be filled with the joy of the master of grace and mercy and peace and new life, the one who really is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.